On the Slay Queens podcast, we take a deep dive into the dark side of the rainbow. This isn't just a cheesy catchphrase. It is a note to remember that the topics we discuss can be very graphic and lurid in nature. Listener discretion has been advised. Hello, and welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, hi, hi. Hi, everyone. How are you? I feel like I can breathe. Yeah. The air feels lighter. Yeah. The shoulders feel lighter. um, (laughs) (laughs) I would like to remind everybody that we are speaking to you now from the past. We are. (laughs) We're speaking to you now from the past, and we are speaking to you, what, a day, two days? Mm -hmm. After the election announcements, or after the election has been called. So we now know who the president and vice president-elect will be and hopefully if you're listening to our specific program uh, (laughs) you are as excited about those results as we are and even if you're not that's fine but we're just gonna say that we are because we are (laughs) absolutely we are it's really funny i came home yesterday morning from work because i had been at work saturday when the announcement was made Uh Uh Uh, so i I work my shift and i come home uh, the following morning because I do 24-hour shifts because that's the sort of work that I'm in. Sure. And I finally, for the first time, had an opportunity to sit down with my partner, with Hunter, and have a conversation about the election and the results and how happy we both were mm-hmm. and how relieved we were and how we had that that feeling that we could just relax and take a breath. Mm-hmm. And I cried talking to him about it. And uh, I said, it just means so much because I didn't realize how much weight I was carrying around. Right. Because of... True. everything that was going on socially and politically and uh-huh. who was in office and who was potentially going to be in office for four more years. Right. But once that weight had been lifted, I literally cried and said to him, it just feels so good to not believe in my heart of hearts that there's a very real possibility that people are going to start locking people like you and I in cages. Mm-hmm. And I just broke down talking about it. It's so a very, very, very valid point. So, yay, President yay. Joe. I was uh, literally at... Hail, this. Madam Vice President. I stan. Yeah, I absolutely same. love her. We call her our, our wife around here. <laughs> we do. <laughs> I swear. And um, it's funny because I was, you know, Saturday, I'm a hairstylist. And I was obviously at the salon. And I was with a client who I've had for quite a while. But you, you get to know your clientele. And, you know, it's like talking to your family versus talking to some, you know, a friend. Because you just kind of sense you maybe not curse, maybe not use vulgarities sometimes with some of them. And this was a particular one who I usually had not. And she stood up after I had finished her hair and she looks at her phone and she goes, we did it. Like we won. And I just like, I was on my phone, you know, getting ready to check her out. Cause I, that's how I do that. And I just looked at her and I go, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and she, her eyes got so big and she was like, we fucking did it. And I'm like, yeah. It was a moment. It was a moment. And it was funny, too, because the next person I had was new. I just happened to know her from social media. And she's a lesbian as well. And she came in. And the first thing she says was like, did you hear? (laughs) You know? And it was just the whole rest of the day. Just thereafter. It just felt wonderful. So, yay. So, yay. I didn't think we would talk that much about it. But it's just such a huge thing, you know? And and this is what we're here for, right? It is what we're here for. And we hope that you folks are here for it as well. Mm -hmm. And you are as excited and as happy and as relieved 
as the rest of us. Yes. And I do want to say one other thing, because it was my favorite thing that I saw after the election. That's probably 24 hours after the announcements had been made and everybody was celebrating and like people were literally just like out in In the the streets. streets celebrating. There was a meme, of course, that was circulating around social media. I shared it to my personal page and it was something to the effect of live your life in such a way that the whole world doesn't celebrate in the streets when you lose your job. It is the whole world too. It like like congratulations world. from other countries, especially like namely celebrities in other countries that yeah. were like, man, if I could vote, I would endorse this person. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. So Yay. So we digress a bit. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. Yes. And we'll do our little rainbow yeah. star. Welcome back to the Queens, Kings, and Folks here to the Slate Queens podcast, where we take a deep dive into the dark side of the rainbow. That is absolutely correct. And <laughs> we feature a rainbow star, rainbow because we're queer, star because we're giving shout outs, thank yous, making announcements or acknowledgements and giving recommendations. And I'm going to let Ashley kick us off with that this week. Yeah. So I specifically actually wanted to shout out the screen name and we believe we're pronouncing this correctly hopefully is E. Panzoni on Instagram. He did reach out to say that he loved the Pulse Nightclub episode and you know saying that he appreciated how I told the story and like had some personal story in there too which I always like love and appreciate and you know it was hard it was a struggle for me with that one because I wanted to tell the story respectfully and still give details and not get too gory or whatever the case may be. So that was one too. That was just really nice to hear someone say that they, they loved it. They appreciated it and that it was done well. So I just really wanted to say thank you. Thank you. A thousand times. Thank you. Because we sound confident all the time, but sometimes I'm like, Oh, did I do good on that one? You know what I mean? How was it? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we feel as though what we're doing here at the Slay Queens podcast is very important, telling these stories and trying to do it in a respectful way, an informative way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know how it's being received Uh to the listeners. So when we receive positive feedback like that, it's just super amazing. Absolutely. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. And as far as announcements go, I did want to give a follow-up or an update or Mm -hmm. whatever you might call it. Those of you who heard the episodes where we originally talked about how we were doing kind of a fan drawing, and then we made the announcement that we had chosen the person and who then won the contest. Nothing after that. <laughs> and then nothing after that. We did choose Amy Pearson, shout out to Amy, mm-hmm. to, or as the winner of the contest, to come guest host with us for yes. an episode. Coordinating three grown folks' schedule is uh, challenging, but we have finally managed to do that. We have the date chosen that we'll be recording. We have subject matter chosen, and that is coming at you folks sometime really soon. Yes. I would estimate probably within the next three to four-ish I was going to say like maybe the next four episodes because my math is bad, but yeah, somewhere around there. Those of you who are members of our fan folks here on Patreon will get that a week early. And it's almost like, so we kind of, you know, asked her, like, do you want to tell a story? Like, how do you want to do it kind of thing? And then her decision was, you know, for her to tell a story and for us to tell a story. And and she chose what she was going to do and then gave us suggestions. And the two suggestions I absolutely love, but I looked at you and I was like, that's heavy. Like, that's big. (laughs) That's big. That's a big, big things to talk about. So it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. I'm glad what we've chosen, we've chosen because I never would have chosen it just for like a regular episode because it is so big. Like, it's a very monumental 
thing to talk about. So yeah, so just a bit of a foreshadowing. Teaser, there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a massive pile of foreshadowing. Yeah. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one mm-hmm. because it will be coming at you soon. Yes. And we'll finish off with recommendations. Do you have any? Because I totally do. Oh, do you? You go first, then. You go first. Okay, so Sinisterhood is a pretty well-known podcast, Mm -hmm. so I don't necessarily need to shout them out because (laughs) I'm sure any of our fans are also fans of theirs. Yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great podcast. They're also like a true crime podcast as well. A little murder mystery. I don't listen to them consistently, but I'm familiar enough with them that I listen on at least a semi-regular basis. Okay, so they recently have done... Two episodes on the Free Britney movement. What? And girl, I am living. I am living. I need to listen to it. Because you know that yeah. Britney holds a very special place You're in my heart. You're a Britney gay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm absolutely a Britney gay. Yes. So, and it's so well done. I've only listened to, it's a two episode piece. I've only listened to the first episode so far. Mm-hmm. And it's about Britney's childhood and her early career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, up to the point that the conservatorship that her father has over her is starting to to seem unlawful and out of hand. Okay. So I highly, highly, highly recommend that. I didn't even know that people had started to see that at such a young age. I just, I knew that like, he had become kind of like the main person to basically just own her in a way. But I, I didn't think it was until like later in life that people started to realize how. And it's a really interesting perspective too that you're getting because one of the hosts is actually a lawyer. So she can speak Mm. to the legalities of it. Love her. I am living. So I highly recommend it to you and all the listeners. No, when you leave, usually Sierra has more work to do. So I like listen to a podcast or watch a show and I feel like that's probably what I'm going to Yeah, do it, girl. Do (laughs) Do it. Do it. What about you? You have any recommendations for us? Well, okay. I watched the mini series, which was a, I wish I would have read the book because I always like to read the book first, mm-hmm. but I honestly didn't know that it was a book until I started watching the show, which was Little Fires Everywhere, which is not my typical genre. It's mainly a drama, but I liked the like underlying themes of racism and homophobia and, and this whole idea of this small town that's very rich and made to be that way kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Something that's forcing people to have the uncomfortable conversations. Exactly. And it's, it's really good in that way. I will warn you, there's a lot of like fighting and screaming because it's a lot of women involved, like moms, daughters, babies, that whole like scenario. But I mean, it's definitely worth watching just to like understand kind of how everybody's struggling in a way. There are little fires everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a good, like, uh, what's a metaphor, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's also too, like, are you like me where you watch a movie or a TV show and you just, I love it when they say the name of the show or the movie. <laughs> I'm like, oh, they said it. They said that. <laughs> where they're like, they're plugging their own thing. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, that's why it's called that. Yeah. So in the very, very beginning, like I'm talking. Full circle moments. <laughs> I'm talking, yes. I'm talking in the first five minutes. It's like the house is burned down. That's what you see. And I think it's a police officer who says, you know, when they investigated, they said there were little fires everywhere. <laughs> I was okay. like, that's awesome. I love <laughs> so, it. So yeah, it was, it's, I mean, I will give it a seven out of 10 overall, but as far as like educational value, I think it's, 
10 out of 10. And we need that right now. Yeah, definitely. At least in our country. That's available on Hulu, right? I think, it is. It's I on Hulu been, now. I think it's been suggested in my yeah. like Hulu suggestions. Because so I think it was on I'll something else. And then I saw it on Hulu and I was like, well, now I'm going to watch it. So it took me three days to watch okay. eight episodes. Cool. So yeah, All that's right. mine, I guess. Okay. Well, should we take a quick break and then come back and tell some stories? I'm ready for this. I'm actually really excited about mine too. I'm excited. All right. Quick break. And we are back, 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 back again. Back, 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 back again. That is correct. That is the correct answer. All right. So I'm actually pretty excited about this one because this is a story that takes place in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, okay. Yeah. And for those of you who are maybe newer to the podcast or those who are starting with the newer episodes and working your way back. You may or may not know that I actually used to hail from Memphis, Tennessee. I lived there for about 14 years. Actually, I forgot to tell you this at the time, but Sierra and I were going to Georgia soon and we were looking to stop in Tennessee on the way. And I found an Airbnb that is a, it's a tiny home, but it is straight up all Dolly Parton. <gasps> like I saved it and I was like, we have to take Wayne here for the rest of one year. Like it is amazing. I don't love, I mean, I love her, but when I was seeing it, I was just like, Wayne would lose oh, yeah. his mind. Oh yeah. Not only am I a homosexual, but I also used to hail for many years yes. uh, from Tennessee. And let's just be really, really, truly honest here. <laughs> we as human beings don't deserve Dolly Parton. No, we don't. all of her greatness. Yes. So yeah, I'll have to show it to you. But I, yeah. Please do. <laughs> all right. So this uh, story takes place in Memphis, Tennessee. There's not a ton of information out there about it. It wasn't a highly publicized case, and it's a story that happens in the 1800s, the 1880s and the 1890s. So it's going to be a little bit shorter, but I love the story. I love that I kind of have a personal connection to it and mm-hmm. maybe a couple of elements. So I love to go back in history, too. Oh, yeah, let's be a good one. Let's take a deep dive into the historical side of the rainbow. Absolutely. <laughs> you like how I did that? <laughs> I like that. All right. So today we're going to talk about Alice Mitchell and Frida Ward. I only used two sources for this one because, again, there's not a ton out there. I used a website called MurderByGaslight.com and FocusMidSouth.com. So, are we Murder ready? MurderByGaslight, that's an intro. I like that. It was a cool little website. Yeah. It essentially was just like blog style, like stories. Cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. They did a really great uh, write-up on this particular case. Let's so, do this. On July 18th of 1892... A young woman by the name of Alice Mitchell was taken before the Shelby County Criminal Court in Memphis, Tennessee, in hopes of determining whether or not she was insane or of sound mind and thus able to stand trial for the violent murder of a young woman named Frida Ward, to whom she had previously been engaged. Yes. The murder had occurred on January 25th of that same year. So this is 1892 when Alice slashed Frida's throat with a razor blade in the streets of Memphis. Upon initially being questioned after the attack, the only explanation Alice offered was, quote, I wanted to cut her because I knew I could not have her and I didn't want anyone else to have her, end quote. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that like, wow, that's powerful. It's, it's, it's a pretty powerful statement. And, People um, won't admit that usually, right? Like, Well, there's good reason for it. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll touch on that <laughs> towards the end. All right. So in very me fashion, who were these women? Mm-hmm. Who the fuck are Alice Mitchell and Frida Ward? Frida Ward, the teenage daughter of a wealthy planter and merchant, met Alice Mitchell, who was also the daughter of a prominent Mid-South family, at the Higby School for Girls in Memphis, Tennessee in the late 1880s. The two quickly became very close. 
So close, in fact, that Alice and Frieda were often seen embracing and kissing by their peers and classmates. Oh, wow. Yeah. They just did not care. I love that. (laughs) Well, Alice and Frieda's closeness was actually not considered unusual for the time. In fact, sleepovers and obvious signs of affection between women were considered part of a practice known as, quote, chumming. Have you ever heard of this terminology or this expression before? I feel like maybe I've heard it in like a movie that was set in the 1800s, but I didn't know what it was. Okay, so let me tell you what it is because I've never heard of this before. Yeah. All right, chumming describes relationships that were thought to be practice for the later bond of matrimony and motherhood. (sighs) Their relationships were eventually meant to dissipate in the presence of a husband and children, or so so people believed. So this is like when I was like a little kid and my friend Olivia and I would like pretend to be mom and dad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, sure. Like, that's probably psychologically, like, people did that, and Mm -hmm. then it was accepted, and it was fine, but sometimes, some way, somehow, people were like, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't be doing that, or something. They're just waiting for the right man to come along. (laughs) That's where that notion comes from, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, that, in the Mid-South, in the 1880s, at least, was known as chumming, and it was not considered unusual behavior. Interesting. Those close to the girls, however, would report that Alice seemed to take the relationship much more seriously, whereas Frida, who was known to be a flirt, seemed to see Alice as one of her, one of the many people who was after her attentions and affections. Some would even suggest that Alice was obsessed with Frida and extremely jealous of her flirtatious tendencies. Mm. So the plot thickens mm-hmm. a little bit there, right? All right, so let's talk about after school, like after they were no longer in school together, because these girls are only, I think, at the time that the shocker murder occurs. We've already kind of discussed that. They were 16 and 17 years old. Sure. Okay. Something something like that. All right, so in the early 1890s, Frida Ward and her family moved to Gold Dust, Arkansas to improve the family's fortunes. Gold Dust, which is approximately 100 miles southwest of Memphis, was just a quick boat ride down the Mississippi River. Due to this fact, she and Alice Mitchell were able to maintain or continue to be close through letter writing and through Frida's frequently returning for visits to the city of Memphis. On one such visit, the women took their relationship to the next level when they declared their love for each other, exchanged rings, and began planning to elope to the city of St. Louis, Missouri. In letters, the women planned their future together, a future in which the two would, of course, elope together to St. Louis, Missouri, where Alice would actually dress in men's clothing and live under the name Alvin J. Ward, posing as a man, so that the two might legally marry one another. And at this point in my research, I really did stop to consider whether or not Alice was what we would consider today potentially a transgender individual. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. But I couldn't substantiate that with any other reporting, so I didn't feel the need to change the pronouns in which I was referring to her or refer to her as Alvin. But I guess we have to consider that there's a possibility that maybe if she were alive and well today, she Mm -hmm. would identify as a transgender person or maybe a gender non-conforming person. Sure. But at the time, it was, of course, not legal for two women to marry. So the two were plotting and planning to run away together to St. Louis for Alice to live as Alvin so that they might legally marry. Sure. It's sort of a question of like, did she do it just so that they could, was she just pretending so she could be married or did she actually feel that way? Yes, exactly. So I couldn't substantiate that with with any of my research. Mm -hmm. The women were seemingly happy and all appeared to be going to plan until one night in August of 1891. On that evening, Frida's older sister, Ada, who lived in Gold Dust with the rest of the Ward family, 
discovered the letters outlining their plans to elope, as well as a packed suitcase that Frida had in her possession. Ada was, quote, shocked and disgusted by these discoveries, calling the relationship unhealthy and unnatural. She forbade, and I left that word in just because I like it, she forbade Frida to have any further contact with Alice. Under the watchful eye of Ada, who monitored Frida's incoming and outgoing mail, in addition to insisting that she be accompanied by a family member on any trips that she took to visit Memphis, Frida did as she was told, and she cut all ties with Alice Mitchell. Uh And I wanted to mention here that I couldn't actually substantiate it with any of my research or anything that I read, but it sounds to me like Ada didn't just keep this tea between she and Frida. It sounds like this was a situation that the whole family was in on. Sure, they're all making sure that they're not going to see each other. Exactly. All right, so just put a small pin in that, like a tiny little pin. A little pin. Tiny little pin in that because it's going to come back somewhat in a moment. Just a thumbtack. Just just a little (laughs) thumbtack, a little push pin, if you will. Mm -hmm. All right, so on January 25th of 1892, Frida Ward was in Memphis visiting a family friend by the name of Mrs. Kimbrough. Unbeknownst to her family, Frida had secretly communicated with Alice that she would be in town visiting on that day. Knowing her location, Alice showed up at the Kimbrough residence in a horse-drawn buggy, only to be turned away by Frida's sister, Joe, who evidently was acting as her assigned chaperone on that particular trip, which is kind of the biggest indication for me that it wasn't just the sister Ada Uh because she had sent a different sister along Uh on this particular trip to make sure that she was being monitored. Sort of like they all got together like, hey, we all have to make sure that we monitor. Exactly. We have to save her soul. All right. All right. So Alice was, like I said, she was turned away by Frida's sister, Joe, who was there acting as her chaperone. Alice rode away at that time, but returned to the house just as Frida and Joe were leaving. According to witnesses, Alice jumped out of the buggy screaming, I'll fix her. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, lovely. She ran to Frida, grabbed her by the arm, and slashed her face with a straight razor that she had concealed in her hand. Witnessing this, the sister Joe Ward shoved Alice to the ground and hit her with an umbrella to give her sister Frida an opportunity to run away. Alice jumped up and ran after her. She caught up with Frida and slashed her face again before taking a handful of her hair, pulling Frida's head all the way back and slitting her throat from ear to ear. Uh, I don't know why to me I'm like envisioning this in my head and it's such like a Western looking scene where it's just like gravel all around and like there's a horse drawn buggy behind them and she's just like chasing after her and just like womp. Well, the big question I have is, what the fuck are you going off on your girlfriend for? Yeah, like, why her? Clearly, she has communicated, she's reached out to you yeah. and she's communicated with you what's going on. You showed up, you were turned away by her sister, why not, not even sister? by her. She's not done anything wrong. Yeah. And now, not only are you not attacking the sister who turned you away, you're not attacking the sister who shoved you down into the ground and right. beat you with an umbrella. Yeah, you just got <laughs> hit by someone and you're still going after her. Oh, I just don't understand but like you slashed her face she got away from you you chased her down and slit her throat Mm -hmm. that is vicious Mm -hmm. you knew exactly what you were going to do obviously clearly so uh, slit her throat from ear to ear alice went back to the buggy and escaped the scene while frida was carried to a nearby office i couldn't get anything more specific than that just a nearby office where she ultimately bled to death alice mitchell was arrested later that night in her parents home Because, of course, there were witnesses there who identified her immediately. Yeah. All right. So what happened? Alice had to wait several months for her trial to begin. Her father and his high-paid attorneys, because remember, these were, 
this was a prominent family, mm-hmm. an affluent family in Memphis. So these high-paid lawyers and her father entered a plea of present insanity on Alice's behalf, meaning they were arguing that she was insane before the murder and therefore unfit to stand trial. So AKA the modern day equivalent of not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm -hmm. This would be illustrated in trial by Alice giving the following testimony when questioned by her lawyer, whose name was General Luke E. Wright. He asked, why did you cut her? She said, because I knew I could not have her and I didn't want anyone else to have her. You intended to kill her? Question mark. Yes, Alice replied. Now, Alice, why did you intend to kill her? I killed her, Alice said, because I loved her. <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, so that's what I was saying. Like, we'll, we'll kind of illustrate that yeah. a little bit later. She did a really good job of either playing crazy mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. to the courts, or she did a really good job of showing people that she... Was legit crazy. Yeah. Probably I mean, a little bit of both. Yeah. If, if that's your legitimate reason, then yeah, that's a little bit in, uh, crazy. Yeah, a little bit crazy. A little bit of Lexus. A little bit. La, la, la. Okay. okay I'll stop so, there. <laughs> all right. So what ultimately happened? She was found presently insane on July 30th of 1892, and essentially all criminal charges against Alice were dropped. So that they found that she was, in fact, unfit to stand trial. So then what did they do with her after that? So after that, yeah. she was ordered to be institutionalized at Western State Hospital for the Insane at Bolivar in Bolivar, Tennessee. And I'm not sure if you noted the wording, the at Bolivar. I le- that's how it was written mm-hmm. in the article. And I left it in there that way, even though, like, grammatically, it's maybe not correct. Mm-hmm. But that's how the locals say it. Right. The locals say it at Bolivar. And the reason I know this, I have a personal connection to this. My ex-boyfriend, whose name I'm not going to say on the podcast, <laughs> but my ex-boyfriend, when I lived in Memphis, his mother actually worked at that institution as a pharmacist. Okay. So I've you know been that. there. I yeah. know this place. And that's how his mom always referred to it. She'd say, you know, Western up at Bolivar. That's where I work. And that's what the, that's that's what the so locals call funny. it. Okay. Yeah. So that's why I left it in there that way. Love that. All right. So she was ordered to be institutionalized because they essentially found that she was criminally insane. She was also granted permission to stop and visit Frida's grave on the way to the hospital. At the graveside, Alice reportedly wept openly. Interesting. Yeah. So she at least had remorse for what yeah, she Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Just six years into her stay at Western State Hospital, you know, up at Bolivar, <laughs> in 1898, Alice Mitchell died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Oh? Her cause of death is disputed. Records document both tuberculosis as the cause, but some records also indicate that it was suicide by drowning in the asylum's water tank. Well, and I was going to say, too, like, you know, you think of an asylum during this time period, whatever they were doing to her was not like necessarily actually rehabilitating her. I'm sure no. it could have been a, a training or something that they were taught to do to, to drown the gay out or the, the crazy out or whatever it was that could have happened. And You're absolutely perhaps right. she did have tuberculosis and they were like, well, this girl's going to die anyway. So some people tried to cover it up. Some people were a uh-huh. bit more honest with their documentation. Sure. But what actually happened to her as far as like her legitimate cause of death remains unknown to this very day. Yeah, well. 
And that's all I know about that story. That's a wild story, though. It's kind of a wild ride, right? No, that was a good one. Yeah. So I've said it before and I'll say it again, man. Memphis lesbians are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to all my Memphis lesbian friends. I love you. I say that with the most jest and affection. Absolutely. All right. Should we take another quick break? Yes. And then we'll come back. Because you have a story for us. I do. Yay. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) I'm very excited to tell this story. Okay. When you first said that you were going to cover this case, I I believe at the time I said, I'm slightly teeny tiny, Mm -hmm. vaguely familiar with this. So I'm excited to be more familiar with this. Mostly. Well, also too, it's it's an interesting case. But also, too, I've I tried to make my script a little bit more like how you like to do, a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more fun in that way, a little bit more... Uh, Alexis, la, 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 la. <laughs> So, yeah, um, before I start, because I've been so bad about this lately, I wanted to make sure that I cite my sources this time, even though we always add them in, but I want to say them. We do put them in the show notes, That's, in case anybody's yes, curious. Yes. Yeah. Just so you know, if, if you ever want to look at what we've... So there was a, a blog on this website called talkmurderwithme.com, which I loved. I love the sound of that. There was a couple different Oxygen publications, and that's because there was a show called An Unexpected Killer, which I believe was an Oxygen show. I think I watched it on like Hulu or something. Obviously, there was a couple articles off of that too. And then there's another one called thecinemaholic.com. I didn't write it right, but it's thecinemaholic.com. <laughs> okay. So this is a story of Jesse Valencia. And I'm just going to start off by like kind of just telling the story story for a second and then kind of reeling it back in. Okay? okay. All right. So on the early morning hours on June 5th, 2004, saw college students at the University of Missouri or Mizzou stumbling back to their apartment buildings after a typical Friday night. It would still be some hours before the sun would rise, but Columbia's reputation as a relatively safe college town meant students felt secure enough to walk home in the dark. Violent crime was considered rare. The majority of the calls to the police were people reporting behaviors typical of college students, college campuses. And I left this in because I thought it was funny because they're like, you know, noise, complaints, and or drunken disorderly conduct. It's <laughs> literally the only two <laughs> they wrote. Legit, yeah. <laughs> uh, later on in, in the morning in question, however, calls would be made to the Columbia Police Department regarding a far more sinister crime. Once they had sufficiently recovered from their hangovers, students emerged from their apartments to begin the day. A group of friends were walking past a row of apartment buildings when they spotted someone lying on the ground between two buildings. They didn't need to get much closer to see that the person was not just passed out on the grass. It quickly became very apparent, given just the amount of blood, that this person was dead. The police were called and quickly arrived at the scene. At first, they considered that this may have been a tragic accident. Given the location of the body between two buildings, it was possible that the person had been drunk and tried to jump from one roof of the building to the other, which, I mean, if I were a cop and I walked into college campus of this stature, (laughs) I'd probably think the same thing. I work in emergency medicine. I have worked in areas where college students were prominent Mm -hmm. and where just like party culture was prominent. And it's not so unusual that you get called out to tragic scenes Mm -hmm. that originated with that whole hold my beer and watch this sort of like mentality. Yeah. I have a, I have a, I should should say acquaintance, an old friend who from high school who went to a college and is now in physically immobile in a chair because of a a fall like that. 
Upon closer examination, they would quickly rule out this theory. The body, which belonged to a young man in his 20s, was naked apart from a pair of blue boxer shorts. And I immediately thought of you when I heard that from the episode with PhD. And you're like, the most offensive thing about this is the boxer shorts. <laughs> I actually almost said that again just now, but in my mind, I thought, no, you've already made that joke. So. Oh, like I made the Cindy Prescott quote twice in like two different episodes. So that's okay. <laughs> It just shows that that's just us. Yeah. So the source of uh, blood and on and around his body was a knife wound to the neck that was so deep the blade had nicked his spine in the attack. Oof. Yeah. That's Brutal. aggressive. Brutal. The body had bruises across his breastbone and between the shoulder blades. The police realized he lived alone a block away from where his body was found. So who was the body? Which I kind of already said that. The body was identified as that of 23-year-old Jesse Valencia, a junior at the university majoring in pre-law. College life had been going very well for Jesse. He had plenty of friends, was excelling in his classes, and earning some extra money working as a clerk at a local motel. He was also embracing life as a gay man. Being charming with classic good looks, he had no trouble finding romantic partners. Jesse was born in Danville, Kentucky on February 22nd, 1981, which hails a little bit to me. I've been there quite a few times. A long time ago, I dated a girl who was from there. So we would go visit her family a lot. Really cute little town. Very Republican little town. I feel like I've heard of it. It's super I feel cute. Like I've heard of it, yeah. But it's is definitely it, is it very religious. Atlanta? I don't know. That's yeah. a good question. Yeah, I think it's near Atlanta. I think it's like not like super close, but a geographically not, like, challenged. But not, yeah. <laughs> I think it's somewhat near Atlanta. If okay. anybody knows, yeah. please let us know. Shout us out. <laughs> it's a cute little town, though, but I yeah. will say, like, mom and dad, very Christian. The yeah. whole group of people are Got very it. involved in their churches and this, that, and the other. His mother, Linda, began a relationship with Lupe Valencia when Jesse was very young. Lupe and Jesse bonded. Lupe would be the only father Jesse would ever know. Linda and Lupe had two daughters together, Rachel and Maria, whom Jesse adored. Lupe owned many horses and passed his love of animals on to Jesse. Jesse's friends and family described him as a passionate, worldly person who loved life, was eager to learn, and would always be there for a loved one in need. And I just get this total idea of like who he was and you see pictures yeah. of him and he just seems so sweet and you just want to hug him. So I have here, ready? Enter stage left. Steven Rios, the police officer who threw the book at Jesse and then came back for a bedtime story. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know how I feel about it. That was that. a quote that was from the episode that I watched where I was like, okay, now that I heard that, I have to write it. It's amazing. And I have to cover this case because that was so good. I, hey, you don't choose the cases. The cases choose you, right? That's right. So on April 18th, 2004, so this is before everything had happened. Police broke up a party at the home of Valencia's friend. Rios was one of the officers present, and Valencia asked him for probable cause. That got him arrested, Swingle said, who I believe is just another officer that they've interviewed. And Stephen Rios gave him a municipal court summons for obstructing a government operation. So yeah, imagine like college kids partying, cops come in and this Law student. Would, yeah, would yeah. be like, where's the reasonable, yeah. the probable cause? And he's just like, oh, now you're going to jail, whatever. Mm -hmm. So don't question me, boy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. On the drive down to the station, Rios asked Valencia several personal questions, according to his mother, Linda, like questions about her. And the attention didn't stop there. The next day, Rios showed up at Jesse's apartment unannounced, claiming that he had more questions that needed to be answered. They went out a few times after that, and he would come to Jesse's apartment even when he was in uniform. Linda told the show An Unexpected Killer. 
Close friend Joan Sheridan confirmed that Jesse saw Rios multiple times after the arrest and that he would stop by the apartment, quote, just for sex. Sheridan also revealed that when Jesse went to court for his summons, he assumed the charge would be dismissed because of his relationship with Rios. It had not been dismissed, and that angered Jesse. So Jesse had told Joan that the next time the police officer comes over, I'm going to tell him that I have a little secret the chief of police might want to know. Ooh. I mean, I understand that mentality because he's upset. He's pissed. He Mm -hmm. thinks, you know, I've got this personal relationship with this guy now. He's a married man. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I, I should add that yeah, in. He's a married that, man. But he thinks that he's got enough, I hate to, to say it like this, he thinks he's got enough on this person mm-hmm. that it's going to benefit him in some way. And what lost him? something on the record, too. Yeah, absolutely. And then he, he gets upset and he was like, I've got a little bit of weight that I can throw around, but also... This isn't TV. This isn't TV. Sounds dangerous. Yeah. Well, we're talking about it on a true crime podcast. So. <laughs> so it's a little dangerous, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in an interview with investigators, uh, Rios denied the affair, but after they confronted him with the testimony from Jesse's friends, he admitted he had sexual relations with Jesse. He maintained, however, that he had nothing to do with the murder, and with a lack of physical evidence, no charges were filed. After the interview, Captain Schwartz received an alarming phone call from Rios, who said he had, quote, done a bad thing. He told Captain Schwartz that he was 150 miles away in Kansas City and that he had purchased a shotgun. Captain Schwartz said that she placed with him or she pleaded with him, I'm sorry, to come back to Columbia so they could sort everything out. Once Rios returned, he was taken into protective custody and put on a 96-hour hold at a mental facility, which I believe would be like the 5150 kind of mm-hmm. like thing. Yeah. Rios managed to escape and made his way to the roof of a parking garage where he threatened to commit suicide. Police arrived at the scene and were able to help to talk him off the ledge. He was again placed in a mental facility, and during this time, the results came back from the forensic lab. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the plot oh, thickens. Hold on this one. Multiple loose hairs that were found on Jesse's chest came back as a match to Rios. The samples were determined to be limb hairs, meaning that they came from his arm. And the way that it was kind of described to me was kind of like, think like a chokehold. Like if he put his arm like a police officer has been trained to do, Mm -hmm. then he would know or train not to do. He would then be grabbing at his arm kind of thing. Rios was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. The prosecution argued that on the night of his murder, Rios went to Jesse's apartment and he threatened to expose the affair. An argument ensued, which was heard by a neighbor, and Jesse, clad only in his shorts, ran out to escape Rios. Rios chased Jesse and quickly caught up with him, placing him in a chokehold and rendering him unconscious. And nobody witnessed this? That's what I'm wondering. Like... Was it because it was late in the middle of the night? Maybe people uh, were at bars or like just not in that general area. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Who knows? I thought the same thing, but you know, it was a late Friday night. So, yeah. or okay. people's just, maybe people are just thinking, oh, it's a bad fight. You know, I'm drunk, like whatever, not my yeah. problem. He then cut Jesse's throat and fled the scene. Oof. Rios was charged and arrested for first degree murder. A Boone County jury found him guilty in 2005. However, the conviction was overturned by the Missouri Court of Appeals Western District because of the admission of hearsay evidence. Okay, wait. Oh, <laughs> And you know why that happened. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. That wouldn't happen for just anybody. 
A retrial was held and Rios was convicted of second degree murder in 2008. Mm. The, the court also upheld the verdict. So, yeah, basically they were like, yep, that works. That's fine. Which at least it was still a murder charge. It was a murder charge, but I find it difficult to believe that he didn't go there with the specific intention of killing him. Exactly. But somehow a good lawyer or someone believed him and they were like, all right, fine. We'll they created reasonable you. doubt yeah. with regard to that aspect of the crime. At sure. Least. All right, there's a, a little bit more on this. Ultimately, Stephen Rios was sentenced to life plus 23 years for armed criminal action. The sentence went out as a message to other law enforcement officials about the severity of the consequences if they break their oaths, which to me, I'm like, then make it first degree. Like, I don't know why you would lessen the charge. Okay, whatever, fine. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Notably, Rios is eligible for parole in 2035. Report suggests that he is currently serving time at South Dakota State Penitentiary. So anybody who's there and you want to keep him behind bars, just write your congressperson or something, write the mayor, write the governor, someone, keep it there. Write your lawmakers. Yes, all of them. (laughs) Currently, he is part of a pen pal program. I wanted to add in. Okay. (laughs) Where people can write to a prisoner. Rios has described himself as being family oriented and having children of his own. He's spoken about his journey in life, which taught him to be humble and patient. Rios seems determined to move past what happened and strives to learn something new each day so that he might progress and succeed. And I'm like, I don't like the way that that article necessarily was ended that I kind of drew from, but I kind of kept it that way because it's interesting to see the fact I, you know, he's a police officer. So they make him almost like they shine this like nice light on him. No, it's bullshit. It's the sort of thing that he is saying to like the parole board whenever Mm -hmm. he has an opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what that is. It's the equivalent of being like, you know what? Son of Sam is now son of hope, you know, like in prison. I'm a changed person. He's trying to portray himself in this. I'm a changed person. I'm a good man. I'm a lawful man. I'm a family man. I'm no longer fucking dudes. That's Um, right. That's exactly what he's doing. That's exactly right. And and so I call. Yes. Yeah. And the fact that he's, you know, he's sitting in prison able to talk to whoever he wants, just get these letters in the mail. And you know that he's probably just got fan mail out the ass when it comes to like cops in the area and people who know the story, like, oh, that's total BS. Like, I have to say that that intrigues me, not him specifically, but it intrigues me just slightly Mm -hmm. to have access to these people in a pen pal sort of capacity, not in anything more direct than that. Oh, yeah. But to have access to them to just ask them questions and see how they respond. So it's funny, the same girl that I had brought up before, I she had a roommate at the time when I met her and he was he was a really cool guy. But we kind of both realized in that we both are super into true crime Mm -hmm. and like we both had studied serial killers. Well, apparently he did that like he was writing to multiple mm-hmm. famous serial killers and I read some of the letters and one of them I mean like some of them will literally just tell you how to kill people like you ask them a question and then they just go way too far into like that question but it's like what else do they have to do you know what I mean if that's what you want to write about then you're going to write about whatever you want because you can yeah well and it's their legacy so yeah. they're going to try to make that as grandiose as possible mm-hmm. right especially the ones that are on death row or the ones that are spending their life in prison that really won't have an opportunity for even the possibility of parole yeah and they're famous for doing what they did. I'm yeah. pretty sure he's like tried to write to Manson. I don't know if he's ever heard from him, but yeah. Well, he's dead now, so. Well, <laughs> if you ever heard from him between then and now, I yeah. guess, or when yeah. he died. So yeah, that's the story of Jesse Valencia and Steven Rios. Well, bullshit. Yeah. But 
interesting in the fact that we didn't discuss either of these cases enough to know that we were coordinating in such a way that we were talking about essentially couples, killer couples, or that both of the victims in these cases got their throats slit. Out in broad, well, not daylight, but out in the street, basically. Yeah, I had no idea. I didn't think about that either. That's funny. People won't believe it, but we (laughs) we really don't ever coordinate enough to know the details of the cases, we only coordinate enough to not cover the same case. Pretty much. <laughs> or make them like, okay, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Serendipitous. Isn't it? Yeah, so that's not fun. Serendipitous. Well, those were good stories, though. Those were good those. stories, yeah. yeah. Not a ton of information about mine, so I apologize that it was a little bit short, but it was kind of impactful, even though it was so yeah, short. Yeah, and I love, I mean, we haven't I've ever, I think, ever covered an, a story from the 1800s. I think that's the oldest one. Yeah. I think that's the oldest case we've covered, yeah. so it's a first. It is. It's a first here at the Slay Queens podcast. All right, so maybe this is our uh, segue into wrapping it up. The mic drop. The mic drop time. (laughs) So thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, thank you. Again. Let us know what you thought. Let us know what you thought. You can reach out to us. We are Slay Queens Pod on all the things. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Mm -hmm. Patreon. Yes. I love our Patreon. Yes, love our Patreon. We, again, I've said this before, but we are looking to add more benefits to subscribing to the Patreon fan folks tier. Uh, But as of right now, you are getting episodes a week early, Uh a week earlier than they're available to everyone else on just the normal streaming platforms. And if you are looking to stream us, you can find us basically anywhere except Stitcher. We've realized that we're not on Stitcher. But otherwise, we are available just about everywhere. Mm -hmm. And if you are listening to us on Apple podcasts or iTunes or whatever you are calling that, because I think those two names are basically the same. Yeah, You're describing the same thing. They are. <laughs> we would hope that you would do what? Like us, rate us, review us. Five stars. Yes. Five stars, obviously. Yes, because that just helps get uh, the Slay Queens out there, circulating, circulating, suggested to people who maybe like a very specific type of podcast genre. And we want to add as many folks to the queendom as we can. And we want to interact with you folks as much as we can. So that's all I have. Do you have anything else, Ashley? Go out and slay, Queens. But. Just not each other. Just not each other. (laughs) Or your lovers. (laughs) Or your lovers. Exactly. Don't fucking slit people's throats. Stop it. Just in general, don't slit anybody's throat. That's bad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going away, but I won't come back on a lonesome railroad line. But I can't forget that sweet little girl who sleeps in the pine. Bye.